Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. So welcome to this evening's program here at the Commonwealth Club. As he said, I'm Melissa Kane. I'm a political analyst and an attorney here in San Francisco. I'm really excited to be moderating tonight's debate with our two experts. Now, San Francisco has long been on the forefront of the whole idea of a recall. We were one of the first cities in the nation to actually implement it. In 1907, voters in San Francisco added the option to our charter just a few months after our mayor was found guilty of embezzlement. (laughs) And I think fraud, no, bribery and embezzlement. So you can see maybe what they were thinking about when they put that uh, in our city charter. And one of the district attorneys who worked on the case was a young man named Hiram Johnson, who went on to become the governor of California, where he continued to advocate for the recall mechanism. In In 1911, California voters elected to add the recall to the state constitution. That's not all they did in 1911. They also gave women the right to vote on the same basis as men. Now, in San Francisco, women pretty quickly gathered and organized and got together the first recall of a judge who they regarded as being too soft on crime against women. Now, because judges are employed by the state and not local governments, it was actually the first ever exercise of the statewide recall mechanism right here in San Francisco. So we've always been sort of at the center of all of this. A few de- a few decades later, there was a thwarted attempt to uh, to unseat another mayor. And then in 1983, there was another thwarted attempt to unseat then Mayor Dianne Feinstein. And then, then that brings us up to earlier this year in 2022, when three members of the Board of Education were recalled. And then that brings us to tonight in our San Franciscans, we've got these guys in the mail, most of us, Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff on this ballot, but of course one of them is Proposition H. And so tonight we are going to dig into this subject. And the way this is going to work is um, either one of our experts is going to have a five-minute opening statement, then we're going to get into more of a conversation about the issues. We're going to be taking the audience questions, so be sure to submit those. And then at the end, each of our experts will have two minutes to give a closing statement. So that's going to be sort of generally the format here tonight. And without further ado, I'm going to get to the introductions. Arguing in favor of the proposition that Chesa Boudin should be recalled is uh, a former district attorney who worked in the office for seven years, two under District Attorney Boudin before she quit the office in October of 2021, um, basically citing the fact that in her estimation, his actions have been making the city less safe. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Brooke Jenkins. All right. I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. Um, and so on, on my right is a professor of law and the director of criminal, juvenile justice, and racial justice clinical programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law. She's been a vocal supporter of the DA and is, and is going to be arguing against the proposition for the recall. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Laura Bazelon. And it has been predetermined between the parties that tonight, Ms. Jenkins, will give her opening statement first. So, please. Yes. Um, and good evening. As you just heard, I uh, was spent seven years of my career at the San Francisco District Attorney's Office um, up until this past October of 2021. Uh, when I joined the DA's office, um, that was in large part because I wanted to bring a diverse representation into the role of a prosecutor, which historically had not really been seen as a job for somebody that looked like me. Um, I wanted to ensure that the person making the decisions about the fate of somebody's life, um, particularly shared maybe a similar background um, and or just would view them as a true person. Um, And that is why I decided to become a prosecutor rather than a criminal defense attorney in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, I knew Chase Boudin as a defense lawyer. Um, he actually was one of three of the four candidates in his race that I knew personally. He was the only one that reached out to me during his campaign. 
and asked me to sit down with him and discuss my thoughts about how he should run the office, what advice I had about changes that needed to be made, and how he could build trust with the attorneys. And I spent an hour at a coffee shop talking to Chesa about my thoughts. When Chesa won the election and took office, um, he promoted me to the homicide unit. I say all this to start off by saying, at the point at which he began, never did I think we were headed down this road. Never did I intend to be somebody who was publicly opposing his work in the office. Um, To the contrary, I wanted to support whoever won that race because this wasn't about politics. This was about the office and, and even more so about the city and our victims. But what I have seen over the last two years is a man who is unwilling to embrace his obligation as the district attorney. He has refused to take off his hat as a public defender whose primary obligation is to his client and put on the hat where your primary obligation is to public safety and is to be an advocate for the victim while balancing the interests of justice for a defendant. That is our primary function as the district attorney's office. We have to be able to look at each individual case and assess what is best for public safety How can we advocate for the rights and interests of a victim to make sure that there is a just outcome for them? And how can we be fair and proportional in whatever consequence we deem is appropriate for a defendant? And that has been lost. Everything about the way the DA's office functions at this point is solely what is best for the person charged with the crime or the person who's been arrested. And we cannot function that way. And what's being lost is that voice of reason and of justice for our victims and for our potential victims. Because every day that we don't put public safety first is a day that we potentially create yet another victim. And I have heard Chesa give a number of talks, conversations, interviews, where he has given very, very misleading and false statements. And it is for that reason that I felt it was necessary to continue to explain just how this system works and just how the things that he is saying are false and how we don't have to make a choice between reform and public safety. We can have both. Reform is absolutely necessary. Trust me, I'm half black and half Latina. It is something that is truly meaningful to me, not from an academic sense, not because I've watched TV, but because I've lived my life in this body because I've had a family member be charged with a crime in San Francisco. I've known people from my neighborhood charged with a crime in San Francisco. But I've also seen the other side of things, where a family member has been gunned down and killed in this city. And we have to balance the interests of both sides in order to achieve true reform, and true justice. And that is where Chesa is failing, and that is why I have been pushing for this recall. Good evening. Thank you for having me, and thank you to Melissa for moderating this discussion. I am here tonight in a variety of capacities. I'm here tonight as, yes, a supporter of Mr. Boudin. I am here as someone with experience working and advocating and litigating in the criminal legal system to make it less racist and more fair in a variety of respects, including through the work I do with my students in the USF Racial Justice Clinic. I want to talk to you about Chase Boudin and his platform and highlight a couple of things that he ran and won on and why this makes him different, why it makes him progressive, and why this movement is about more than just him. It's about pushing forward an agenda that's going to be fairer for everyone. What do I mean by that? When Chase was running for district attorney, it was clear to him that we had a problem with people who had been wrongfully convicted, which was that they had no means of getting out. There was technically a conviction review unit in the DA's office, and it had exonerated no one. When he was elected, he created an innocence commission that's my honor to chair, pro bono. The five of us, we are independent experts. We work labor pro bono to investigate these cases from the ground up. 
to try to do justice, which is forward thinking and backward looking. On April the 18th, 2022, a man named Joaquin Syria walked free after 31 years in prison. And that is entirely due to the work of this DA. Had it been anyone else, he would still be there. Because the standard response from DAs when an innocent person is trying to present their claim is to reflexively deny it. And rather than do that, he allowed us the responsibility to look into it, and then he followed our recommendation, and a judge concluded that, yes, indeed, newly discovered evidence was of such persuasive force and value that this conviction could not stand. And two days later, Mr. Syria walked free into the arms of his son, who was an infant when he had been taken away. And the first words that he said, and this is a man who is a refugee from Cuba, were, this is a great country. And the second thing he said was, and I am grateful to the district attorney, Chesa Boudin. It was a historic moment in San Francisco history. It's the first time there was ever a collaboration of this kind, where someone didn't have to fight tooth and nail to prove the basic fact that they didn't do something and someone else did. These are the kinds of reforms that Chase Boudin ran and won on. Now, are people in this city angry and upset? Are there a lot of auto burglaries, property crimes? Is there a sense of feeling that people are less safe? Yes, and I think denying that is ridiculous. I think telling people that their feelings don't matter is not appropriate, and I don't think this DA is doing that. I think he is showing through his reforms that change is hard It zigs and zags, but ultimately we are moving in the right direction. What do I mean by that? This DA has actually filed more cases in his two years than the past two administrations. He's filed 10,000 of them. He has gone after police who beat and shoot unarmed people. He has, in fact, locked up serious offenders. He has secured felony convictions in all kinds of cases, including narcotics cases, contrary to what you have been hearing. What are some of the issues that are plaguing the city? Well, one of them, one of them is the clearance rate. The San Francisco Police Department clears less than 9% of all reported crimes. And when it comes to the crime that makes people the angriest, which is auto burglary, they clear less than 1%. He files 86% of the time in that 1%. But here's the thing. Chase Boudin is not a cop standing on the corner with handcuffs ready to tackle a miscreant and take them into custody. That is not his job. District attorneys, prosecutors, they cannot prosecute people unless the police arrest them and bring them in. That is not happening. Now, you will hear from some people in the recall, well, the police just don't want to do their job because they think that Chase is not going to put anyone away. Do we honestly believe that any right-thinking police officer is going to see a smash and grab, is going to see someone violently assault someone else, is going to see serious crime occur and do nothing? And if they did, should they really have a badge and be on the job? It's absurd. We have a lot of problems in this city. The idea that all of them are embodied by and rest in this single elected individual. And all we need to do with all of our frustration and anger is just eject him. And then all of a sudden we're going to wake up in the morning and there's not going to be burglaries and there's not going to be smash and grabs and there's not going to be auto thefts. And we can just take the recall people's word for the fact that you just get rid of him and everything's going to be great. And we promise you, you can have these progressive reforms and you can have safety. No. What the recall gets to do is make misrepresentations about this DA, and we'll get into them, because the entire recall campaign is built on them. But the most dangerous lie of all is the idea that if you just get rid of this one person, everything else is going to be fine, and he's the problem. We all know it's much, much more complicated than that. I also speak to you tonight as a parent. I have two children. They are fifth-generation San Franciscans. They have relatives who have been police officers and firefighters. They are here tonight, and so is their father, and their grandmother is watching in support of this recall. We are better than this. This is our city. This is our progressive movement. Let's not be swayed 
by rhetoric and the anger that we feel in this present moment. Let's move forward, not backward, to the days of tough on crime and mass incarceration. Thank you. Okay, some interesting points brought up there. I think um, the question about um, the police clearance is one that um, might be interesting to people. I mean, what is what role in terms of you know crime rates in the city is um, is really attributable to to the DA's office versus the police uh, the police force and their ability to to arrest people? Right, and um, you know that's a fair question. Uh, 90% of the time or more, police are not present at the time that a crime is committed. Auto burglary has become so popular in, in large part because you can do it in, in 30 seconds, get in, get out. And most of the time, there are no police officers present, right, to, to see that happening. And so by the time someone calls, that the, the perpetrators are long gone. But here's the issue. The DA's office does have control over the cases that are filed and the, the arrests that are made. And what we are seeing is Chase's failure to address the perpetrators that are caught. And I'm not talking about charging, right? The charging rate is one thing. You can file cases all day. You can even charge them with, as felonies all day long. But if you are then resolving the cases for little to nothing, if you are resolving them for dismissals or for misdemeanors even, then the fact that you are charging them does not equate to accountability. And so what's happening is even when pe people know, right, these criminals know that at the moment they get caught, it doesn't matter. They are literally telling the police. We're hearing stories. Go ahead. Arrest me because he's not going to do anything. I'll be out in 48 hours. And so that's the dilemma. It's that when you set a tone as the DA that it doesn't matter whether the police solve the case because there still won't be accountability, then no one, there's, it's still not a deterrent at all. Uh, now, on this issue of charging versus dismissals, um, you said 10,000 cases filed. Is that, those are, are those charging cases or are those um, convictions? Those are cases that have been filed. But do you want me to speak to kind of the larger point about how, how these cases end up getting resolved? Uh, sure. Okay. So the way that the system works is that charges are filed and very, very often, in fact, in most cases, I, 90 to 95%, they result in pleas. This is not a newsflash. This is literally how our system operates. I frankly think that more cases should go to trial, but for decades, this is how cases are handled. And why is that? Because literally if every case that was filed went to trial because they were fighting over who was going to go down on the highest or the lesser charge, the system would literally collapse. And the Supreme Court has basically acknowledged that and said, this is why we have this system. I think Justice Kennedy said, we don't have a system of trials. We have a system of pleas. What is a plea? A plea is a negotiation between the two sides to get to an end result that is going to resolve that case. That is true under every single administration, going back from Terrence Hallinan to Kamala Harris to George Gascon to Chase Boudin. There is nothing new under the sun going on here. What is different is that what Chase Boudin has said what he campaigned on, what the voters elected him to do was divert more cases. Divert. What does that mean? People think that means no accountability. That's not what diversion means. Diversion means you have the charge hanging over your head and then you are held to a very rigorous standard. Depending on the case, you have to go get a job. You have to go get substance abuse treatment. If you are addicted, you need to get mental health help. If you are mentally ill, there are standards you have to meet. And if you fail to meet those standards and the charge is reinstated and in all likelihood, you will be convicted. And so the concept of diversion is to get at root causes. Why do people do what they do? Why do people commit crimes? Because if we don't get to those root causes and ask those questions and actually provide solutions that aren't just jail, what we're going to have is the same endless cycle. We've been hearing the same story about tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime since the 1950s, locking people up. We lock up more people in the United States than any industrialized country by an exponential margin. And the evidence has come in, and it's overwhelming that it doesn't make us less safe. I mean, excuse me, it doesn't make us safer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, can I, if I can Please. just respond to that. Um, San Francisco has not locked more people up. That's the difference here. We are not talking about a county that has overwhelmingly used prison as a tool for accountability. 
it, ha- it has been reserved in San Francisco for a long time now, certainly under my, year, my five and a half years working for George Gascon, primarily for violent offenders. We are not talking about the 80s where we're, you know, war on drugs, locking up black people for selling crack versus cocaine. That's not the universe we have been in for the last decade. What we are talking about, though, is diversion versus actual rehabilitation. And those are two different things. A diversion program in the San Francisco Superior Court system is a watered-down version of rehabilitation. It oftentimes simply requires that you take a number of classes. It could be parenting classes if you're in parental diversion. It could be mental health classes, not residential treatment. We're talking just some classes that you have to go to, usually about 15 over the course of a year or two. Um, It could be anger management classes. Those were designed for low-level offenders. Those were not designed for violent offenders. Violent offenders, if you want to address their root, the root causes of their crimes, oftentimes need something much more demanding, right? They need residential drug treatment programs. They need residential uh, mental health treatment programs. And those are not covered under the diversion statutes that Chesa is abusing. He is sending violent offenders. We have cases of armed carjackings sent to diversion, uh, violent assaults sent to diversion, which, again, just requires somebody to undergo classes. And what he has said is misleading, which is this notion that, well, the charge is still hanging over your head, and a year or two later, we can proceed if you fail out. Well, understand this. As a prosecutor, if you have not kept in touch with your victim and or witnesses for over a year, It is not that simple, right? It's not that simple to proceed, to just magically snap your fingers and make that case two years later fall into place. It's nearly impossible most of the time. What used to happen under George Gascon is that we would require, in order for somebody to go to a true rehabilitation program through our collaborative court system, is that they'd have to take a plea at the outset. They'd have to admit guilt, take a plea to a charge that that was agreed upon by the parties. Then they could proceed into the program. And should they fail out, there was already a mechanism of accountability there in place. We didn't have to worry about compiling a case two years later. And if they failed out, like I said, we had agreed upon what the sentence would be. But now that's not happening. No longer does Chesa Boudin require anybody to take a plea. And what would happen actually is that the benefit of their completion of the program is that we would then reduce. We'd say, okay, well, now you can withdraw the plea to whatever that charge was and you can get a reduced plea. To a, to, a, to a lower charge, or sometimes get a dismissal, but you had to complete the program first. Now, they just, they just walk in, and there's no plea that's, that's allowing us as prosecutors to have that safety net. Um, uh, Laura, sorry, we talked about, I want to call her professor, but <laughs> Laura, do you, um, do you have a response? Do you feel like he's been um, appropriate with the, what we're hearing is that he's been putting things in diversion that are maybe felonies or maybe violent, um, and not securing a plea ahead of time. I don't think that's an accurate characterization of the full diversion program and all of the different tools that are available to prosecutors, whether you talk about it being residential drug treatment, which plenty of people go into, or whether you talk about some other measures. There's other diversion that requires that you plead guilty first. There's situations where you plead guilty, you complete a program, and then the charge can be dismissed after. There's situations where you plead guilty and that plea sticks and you are stuck with a felony conviction, which is very, very problematic. And part of the issue, I think, I know, that was that was driving the campaign in 2019 was this sense that we were saddling people, primarily low-level offenders. And remember, that is the vast majority of crime that is committed. Only a very small fraction of crime is serious and violent. And we were taking these folks, and I, I respectfully disagree, you can walk into any courtroom in San Francisco and overwhelmingly, the people sitting in what we call the penalty box in the orange jumpsuits, they are black and brown. Those are the people in jail. Those are the people getting convicted. Those are the people getting jail time and felony convictions and getting sent upstate to prison. So this idea that that's not happening and wasn't happening in numbers that were not necessary to keep us safe, I just don't, I don't think is an accurate statement. So you're saying that under George Gascon, there was too much, um, you know, sort of plea, sort of initial plea level 
diversions that were happening? Is that? I mean, it's an, it, George Gascon is an interesting example because, of course, George Gascon then went to Los Angeles and ran and won on an extremely progressive platform. He moved very far to the left once he became the DA in Los Angeles. And very interestingly, guess what? They're trying to recall him, too. Now, when George Gascon... But was he right-wing when he was here? No, he wasn't right-wing. He was... <laughs> no. No, I just mean, like, it's, I, I felt like he was pretty progressive... He was, he was progressive by the standards of the time. And he was also someone who came up through the ranks of the police. He was the former police chief. And by the way, that won him no favors with the POA, who went after him viciously. So he moved leftward once he moved south and ran for DA in Los Angeles. But I think that, yes, there was a growing sense in this country and specifically in this city that what we were doing was not keeping us safe and was punishing too many people too severely with with no good result. Well, you know, Laura brings up a good point, which is that, you know, he, um, Chester Boudin ran on a platform of using more diversion, of being a progressive district attorney. We, you know, we, the voters presumably knew he was a former um, public defender. I mean, to what degree is he, is what he do, what he's doing uh, a deviation from what you feel like voters were promised? He never explained to voters what what he was going to actually do, right, to achieve these end goals, right? I call them end goals. Reform is a very general term. Ending mass incarceration is a general term, but they're end goals, right? Um, what he never did was explain, this is, the, this is the way in which I'm going to achieve that. And so I don't truly believe that people understood what that was going to look like. Um, I think that people, and, and I know this for a fact because I'm out in the public now discussing this recall with people every single day, and people are misusing the term diversion. Everybody thinks diversion because Chesa says this, is this onerous process. Diversion is, is separate and apart from our collaborative courts, which are our mental health court, our drug court, our young, young adult court. We have specialized courts that are designed to get at the root cause of crime, that have an oversight process with a particular judge and oftentimes require residential treatment. That is not diversion. And so people, when they hear it, it sounds Fabulous. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside to say, yes, I support diversion. I support not incarcerating black and brown people. Of course. But no one looked and or asked him to explain the, the layers below and what that was going to look like, because you couldn't have paid anybody to think that meant we're not going to lock up anyone. Right. It doesn't matter. Our, our rate of Asian hate crime can shoot through the roof by 567 percent. But that person will get diversion. They will be out of custody taking classes. Nobody envisioned that it was going to look that way. And so that's where you've seen this pushback is like, wait a minute. We subscribe to the end goals, but your execution has been completely off base and is incompetent, quite frankly. Um, well, and you did also touch on this issue. I do want to come back to it. The issue of race in in this <clears throat> recall. Um, the the idea that, um, that this is white people freaking out about crime, basically that are that are behind this recall, um, and that you know this that maybe the only way that Chesa Boudin is sort of the only person looking out for minority folks in the criminal justice system. Um, to what degree do you feel like this, you know, the recall itself is sort of race-based? I think that the recall has fear-mongered and scared voters. And I think that some of that makes them feel that the answer to all of their problems is to recall this DA. And the recall has been telling them over and over again that Chase Boudin doesn't care about them only cares about defendants, is secretly a public defender. And that is 100% false. He cares deeply about crime and deeply about public safety. I think trying to say that he somehow hoodwinked the voters by not fully explaining his position is belied by the fact that this was an incredibly hard-fought four-way race. I think there were something like 50 debates. Chase's policies were set forth in granular detail and gone over, raked over the coals at every single debate. The voters, when they went to the polls, were extremely well-educated. 
They got the person that they wanted. They got the person who was going to be reform-minded. I think that issues of race have been used to divide all of us in a way that's extremely unfortunate, and I think the hate crimes against Asian Americans is one of those. He has filed hate crimes in many of those cases. Others have been completely distorted in the media. I just heard him having to correct Scott Schaefer on KQED about one of those very cases. And is it is it racist or race baiting? I don't think it's about that. I think it's about going to people's worst gut visceral instincts and preying upon their fears to sell them something that isn't true. Can I, can I touch on this? Because it's, a, it's something near and dear to my heart. Um, I've been left for the last two years to wonder, what about the victims who are black? What about the victims who are Latino? What about the victims that are Asian? I see Jason Young here, father of six-year-old Jace Young, who was gunned down on the 4th of July while doing fireworks outside. I see my husband sitting here, whose 18-year-old cousin was gunned down on the street, just walking to go meet a girl the day after Jace was killed. Who is their voice? I've talked to countless mothers and fathers of murder victims in this city who say, we don't have a voice in the DA's office anymore. What about us? You want to talk about helping black people? You want to talk about helping Latino people? What about the ones who are getting murdered in this city? What about the ones who are getting attacked, who are having to suffer through gun violence while Chesa Boudin refuses to actually hold accountable those who possess guns, those who use guns? Jace Young's killer, one of them, will spend no more time in Actually, I can't even say prison because he's not going to prison. In a facility, then Jace spent on this earth. And that man back there has to sit for the rest of his life knowing he will never get justice for his baby. The DA's office has an obligation, and it is to be an advocate for those victims in that courtroom. And that's what's been left behind in this discussion. You want to only talk about defendants? No, no. That does a disservice to the role of the district attorney's office. We are to also, and most especially, be a voice for those who do not have a voice in this system. We've been disadvantaged. You are absolutely right when we are the ones in orange. But the DA's office, dang well, better stand up for those who are in that courtroom audience chair as a victim. And right now, there, nothing, nothing is being done. You're not helping any black man or Latino man by saying, here's your slap on the wrist, walk out. We're not dealing with the root causes of crime. We're allowing them to go back out with no assistance, no training, in the same position that brought them into us at, at 850 Bryant Street. And what's happening? The crimes they go out and commit next are worse. And then people have less sympathy. And then rehabilitation is off the table. So if we're going to talk about race, let's talk about it in its truest form. Who is actually being the most impacted by what's going on in this city? And are they truly being helped by what he's doing? And I know for a fact that I've talked to plenty of parents. I know how many signatures Jason Young went out and got. Not because he's white or a Republican or this is political, because it's not. This is about human lives. I would like to briefly respond. I think that it's unfair and false to say that Chase Boudin does not care about victims. And here's something to understand about victims. Victims and the people who offend, they are often part of the same community. They are intimately intertwined and related to each other. I have done a great deal of work talking to victims in the course of the work that we do in the racial justice clinic. And I've also studied it extensively. Not all victims want the same thing. 
Victims want different things. Some victims want jail. Some victims want an apology. Some victims want services. What all victims want is to know that it won't happen again. What we had before Chase Boudin took office were skyrocketing rates of recidivism and a revolving door of people going in and out of jail. The easiest thing to do is someone just to sit in jail for a few weeks and then go right back out. It is not true to say that the programs that have been put in place don't have rehabilitative services. They absolutely do. Or that these treatment courts, behavioral court, young adult court, those courts are up and running and thriving and actually more full than they used to be because more people are going to get those services, Veterans Justice Court, rather than simply going to jail and going to prison. Not all victims want a million years in prison. Some do. And... Not all victims are the final voice in what should happen. A prosecutor is there to represent the entire community. All of us here, everyone. It's not simply about one side having a greater stake than the other. It's about this very complicated task of doing justice. And doing justice requires balancing competing interests. It requires having complicated decisions and conversations. It requires making very tough decisions. Inevitably, there are horrific crimes and tragedies. And there is also accountability. And just to briefly touch on the horrific tragedy that Ms. Jenkins's family suffered, that man who was murdered, Jerome Mallory, the people involved are in jail awaiting trial on murder charges. They are locked up and they are going to be tried on murder. To say that people are just being gunned down and the perpetrators allowed to walk away by an overly permissive DA is not reality. That, that, and that's the type of misleading statement that, that I am here to respond to. Jerome's killers were released initially by Chesa Boudin's office days after their arrest. They were rearrested 11 months later. Two of them in that, in that 11 month span shot other people. When Chesa Boudin initially refused to file the case, it was because everyone agreed that a gang conspiracy charge needed to be used in that particular situation. It's a charge not often used. Um, I actually, when I took over in homicide, the caseload I did, I inherited one MS-13 case where that was used, and it was the first time it had been used in a very, very long time. But sometimes circumstances call for us to use charges that are available to us in order to seek justice. His murderers stayed on the street for 11 months before they were rearrested. Yes, are they facing murder charges? Yes. But what everybody can agree on is that the failure to use the gang conspiracy charge in that case will likely lead to all four of them walking out of the door as soon as they have trials. The other thing is, we have to have, this is an adversarial system, and you have to have two sides in it. You have, to, you have the public defender's office and the, and the defense bar who are solely tasked with representing the interests of defendants. That's it. To the disregard of public safety and anything else, because that person needs a voice in that courtroom that is only looking out for them. But we have to have a DA's office who comes in and says, we are the advocate for the people. We represent the interests of the victims. And of course, we should always be seeking a just and proportional outcome for the defendant. Nobody is necessarily saying that means life in prison. Nobody is saying that victims determine outcomes, but they have a right to be heard legally. They have a right to be acknowledged and to be heard. One thing that I can say about Jason Young, and I'm going to keep bringing him up because his little boy deserves a voice. And the DA's office hasn't been that. When you talk to Jason, he'll tell you he wasn't, he wasn't asking for life, but he felt six years wasn't enough. Those are the types of stories. Those are the types of voices you, you have to respect. You have to, most people would say, I don't ever want that person to walk the face of the earth again. That's not what he said. He said, I, I think more than six years would have been fair, but Chesa looked him in his face and said, it won't bring your son back. 
as somebody who's buried mine, my first child, the thought of that, I, I can't fathom the district attorney, that the chief law enforcement officer of this county looking a parent in the face and saying, well, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to bring your child back. No, it absolutely matters. Because what happens is when there's no true accountability, when there's no justice and fairness, and you're talking about six years later, somebody getting out, what happens in communities like Hunter's Point in the Bayview and Sunnydale and the Mission is that what we call the OGs on the block, right? The old time gangsters. They say, well, look, young man who's 16 or 17, you go do the shooting. Because guess what? You'll be out by the time you're 24 or 25. There's a ripple effect to this. It's not just Jace's life. It's not just Jerome's life. There's a ripple effect when you take a certain position unequivocally. I mean, you just won't bend. There's no balance. And you say, okay, well, six years is enough. And guess what? When you get out, here you go. Um, Laura, do you want to respond to this issue of, of the adversarial system and, and the sense that some people have that they're, you know, that the public defender is the one looking out for the, the accused and that there should be a stronger voice um, you know, and that they can do their job and that, you know, what you need is a, is a counterweight really focused on the victim and, and, and keeping the community safe. I do. And I also just want to say something else about this idea that the killers of Jerome Mallory are simply going to walk out. I think that's a very dangerous thing to say. They are being held by prosecutors who believe in good faith that they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to convict them. That is tainting the jury pool to proclaim to an audience that nothing is going to happen to these people, even though they've been charged and held without bond facing murder charges. I don't think that that's appropriate, quite frankly. In terms of what the DA is supposed to do, what is the prosecutor's job? The prosecutor is a servant of the law. He has a twofold obligation, which is that the guilty not escape nor the innocent suffer. He is supposed to do justice. This idea that prosecutors and defense attorneys are flip sides of the same coin isn't true. Defense attorneys have a very specific job, which is, of course, to advocate within all reasonable and zealous bounds for the best interests of their client. Prosecutors have a much more complicated job because, as I said before, they represent everyone in the system, every single person, and they are meant to uphold and safeguard the Constitution, which is why they are called ministers of justice. And in that role, they have an obligation to hold people accountable in meaningful ways so that there isn't recidivism, so that there isn't spikes in crime. They have a duty to keep us safe. We have heard a lot of stories. Stories are charged. Stories stay with you. And are there horrific tragedies that happen under any DA administration? There are. We could go on and on. We could cherry pick. We could talk about various horrific things that have happened under this DA. And I can turn around and tell you that they have happened under every single DA, including the most tough on crime DAs in this state. Let's take the mass shooting in Sacramento. It's interesting to me that one of the alleged perpetrators, Smiley Martin, was let out of jail after, I think, a period of six years because of a plea bargain struck by that office under Anne-Marie Schubert, who brands herself a tough-on-crime person and who is running for attorney general to the right of our current attorney general. But did anybody turn around after that mass shooting and talk about the underlying plea that was responsible for Smiley Martin being out on the street and then allegedly carrying out this mass shooting? No. And why is that? Because even as one of the proponents of this recall admitted to the San Francisco Chronicle, the DA does not control crime rates. And the idea that there is a direct correlation and that every horrific tragedy lies squarely at the feet of one person and could have been prevented if we had just elected someone else is false. And I will say something else too, which is there's clearly a lot of support for the recall in this room. I hear it. I see you. And there is also clearly a consensus among elected officials and among media outlets that have reported quite critically on this DA that you should all vote no on the recall. And I thought it was interesting that in the op-ed or the, the paper editorial, I should say, 
urging voters to reject the recall, the San Francisco examiner made the point that if the case against Chase Boudin was so strong, in their words, why, quote unquote, was the recall relying on so many falsehoods? We need to think about who is behind this recall. Who's behind it? Billionaires. Five million dollars has been dumped into this race. Five million dollars. The major donor behind this recall, the major donor behind this recall is a man who donated seven figures to elect the Senate Republican majority who got us the three justices that were rammed through to confirmation under President Trump. You know what that got us, among other things? Probably no more Roe versus Wade. There is no separation between the funders of this recall and the money that they are dumping in and those policies. And they are going to take us backward. They are dumping half a million dollars every week into advertisements that are demonstrably false. And you don't have to believe me. You can just read what is reported debunking all of these lies. Would you like to address the issue of the backers of the campaign? Yeah. And, you know, uh, of course, it's conveniently uh, left out that Brandon Shorenstein uh, from a well-known Democratic family who's a well-known Democrat is actually the largest donor to this recall. It's conveniently left out that Chris Larson, who is one of Chase's largest donors, has a a laundry list of Republicans that he's donated to. Again, this is not about politics. One thing we know about San Francisco is that it's about 90 percent, if not more, Democrat. Now, it may vary in shades of blue, but this is a blue city and will always be a blue city. And crime affects everybody, right? That's something that we cannot deny. We are not, this is also one of the most educated, affluent areas of this country. We're not all being bamboozled by one donor. What we know is what we are experiencing. We know that somebody else can do this job more competently and more effectively and can actually bring, be that minister of justice in San Francisco because that's what he's failing at. And, and across the board, if there's anything that's united San Francisco, it's this recall. It has united what, what sometimes is a polarized city because of those shades of blue. But, a, but across the color span, we have united. One of the audience questions here is, um, and, and it actually, it's good because it leads me into my next question, which is, um, it says, why can't we get accurate and transparent data from um, about the performance of the DA's office? And the reason I want to make sure we bring this up is because we are talking about stories here and we're talking about, we're talking in generalities in part because we don't want to bore you to death with numbers. Um, and also because numbers are, you know, are easy to disagree about, but we should talk about some statistics when it comes to things like diversion and dismissals and conviction rates and, and, and the like. So I want to give our experts here the opportunity to talk about some, uh, some of the statistics. Um, you know, hopefully we can uh, try to flesh them out if they're confusing. Um, but, but in addition to diversion, right, there are, there are dismissal rates that, that I, I saw numbers um, that they were higher than, than during Gascon's administration. Yes, and that, those were actually figures that Chesa provided to uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, I believe, um, that said that his diversion rate had gone up 20%, conviction rate down 20%. That's a little bit less of, I think, the issue here. Um, much of it is he, again, touts this prosecution rate, which is a very vague term, uh, but never releases the data about his conv- what actually those cases are resolving for. And so people have said, look, we can listen to you tell us how many cases you've charged, but what are the outcomes of these cases? And that's despite a number of public records requests, he's refused in a lot of instances to turn over that information or there's been significant delays. I don't know how many people saw the Standard put out a, um, an, an article this afternoon 
That reporter was able to get data from the court management system, which is from, directly from the superior court, um, which in its computer system inputs right at the time that a, that a case is charged. They input what the charges are. And at the time of a disposition or a plea, they input what that is. Or if, a if it's a jury trial, they input what the jury convicts or quits on. And so she was able to compile data on narcotics cases. And what her article said demonstrated from compiling that data, not from Chase's office, but from the court management system, was that in the year of 2021, 80% of the narcotics cases were resolved for a 32, which is an accessory after the fact. Only three cases were resolved for actual drug sales charges. None of those cases involved the sale of fentanyl. None of the cases where, where sale of, you know, possession with intent to sell fentanyl were, was charged resulted in anyone having to plead to actually selling fentanyl. And so that's the, that's the dilemma with the transparency is most of the time you're relying upon the DA's office to provide that data. This just so happened was a situation where this reporter was able to get the data from a neutral place, which was the superior court. But most people can't do that. Uh, well, and actually, it's a, it's a good point, because I don't know if you saw the article today. That, I did. Um, do you want to comment on it? I did. The, okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Please. Um, a couple of things. First of all, this is the most transparent DA's office in San Francisco history. You can go to the website and look at the statistics for yourself. This DA posts them. With respect to the article that we ran this afternoon, I have a few things to say. One of them is the idea that cases settling out for an accessory after the fact is somehow letting people off the hook is false. A 32 is a wobbler. Most of them resolve for felonies. They have the exact same consequences as someone pleading to the actual drug dealing. Now, why are there 32s? There are 32s because the law requires the DA to take into account immigration consequences. This isn't Chase Boudin. This is the law of the state of California. It requires the top elected official to take into account someone's immigration status when resolving a case. And that is a plea that means that some of these folks are not going to be deported back to Honduras where they will be killed. And so if you think that it's appropriate to have people plead to a charge that's going to give them the same accountability but get them deported so they can go to a country where harm is going to come to them and you think that that's appropriate and you think that the DA should flout the state law, then by all means. But that is not what 32s are. They are not a dodge. And this idea that people aren't getting convicted of narcotics felonies is not true. The article starts out with this very showy claim. And then if you keep reading, it tells you the truth, which is that there are hundreds of felony convictions, often for other drug charges and often for 32s. And in fact, Ms. Jenkins herself has pled cases okay. to 32s. This is not a Chase Boudin situation. This long predates him. And it is because in this city, we are committed to, and by state law required to, take other considerations into account, including the immigration of status of some of these people who are being trafficked here, being trafficked here and forced to sell drugs. So let's just take a step back because it is far more complicated than the clickbait headline and the first paragraph of the article. Did you? Yeah. Can you yeah. So I'm well aware because I spent three and a half years in the general felony unit under George Gascon of, of when and why we use 32 PC as a charge uh, in certain drug dealing cases. Um, it is not new. And and I discussed that with the reporter. Um, it is a charge that is immigration safe and that is sometimes appropriate to use in certain cases. Um, the way that it worked before was that when it was someone's first offense, that they were caught selling drugs, that was what was afforded to them, a 32 felony. At the point at which they were released and they come back with another case, a third case, a fourth case, a fifth case, that's off the table. Because if you're not going to take responsibility for your status, then you cannot continue to ask the DA's office to continue to overlook your conduct. The second issue was that there was a there was a particular problem with public defenders only seeking that plea for Latino defendants, but accepting more serious charges 
in large part for black defendants. And that was something that I took great issue with because I wanted to see fairness across the board. What didn't happen under George Gascon's administration was us giving 32 misdemeanors. That, that didn't happen. Um, and if it did, it was far and few between, and the data supported that. Uh, but what is happening now is, just like a criminal defense lawyer said in that article, is now you're seeing people with five cases out of custody and getting a 32. That's off the rails. Again, you went from trying to be fair to saying, you know what, just, sell, j- just keep going back out there. Why do we even waste our time? Do you, do you know, does the state law require that to be, uh, like the immigration status to be considered on multiple Yes, it requires it to be considered every single time. It doesn't stop at some artificial point. It is always a state-mandated consideration. Yes. And not all of these cases, or even the vast majority of them, involve five, six, seven arrests. I mean, we can debate this ad nauseum, and I just invite people to read the full piece and also research the issue for themselves, because it's just not that simple. Uh, we are, we've got some time for some audience questions here. Um, Brooke, I have a question. Are you supporting this recall because you want to run for DA? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, that's Chase's go-to. Um, this has never been about me. As a matter of fact, I have tried to recruit as many other prosecutors to speak out as I can because this is about Chase's performance. There's a reason Chase isn't here. Yeah. Chase could be... Chesa could be keeping this about him and being here to defend his own policies and his own decisions, but he's not. Um, and this will never be about me. This is not about any intent to run. This is about me taking an oath and pledging my career to being a voice for the people and for the victims. And I have felt that it is necessary that victims continue to have a voice, whether or not Chase is going to choose to be that voice for them. I just had a question. So does that mean that if um, if the recall is successful and London Breed asks you to be the interim, you would say no or you would not run in November? It, it doesn't mean anything. Um, I can't speak to what London Breed is going to do. I don't know her. Uh, what I will say is that I'm a career prosecutor. I've dedicated the last seven years of my life to doing this job. I hope to return to do it. Um, if somebody deems me capable of doing it in another capacity than what I was doing it before. I, like I told the uh, Megan Cassidy at the Chronicle, I'd be honored to consider that. But right now, and for the last seven years, I have been completely content being in the courtroom. I actually miss it. Uh, but again, I am here because victims deserve to have a voice, and that's been lost. I think it is significant that you wouldn't rule out either thing and that the only Democratic elected official who has come out in support of the recall is a supervisor who also wants Chase Boudin's job. We, we also have two other DAs who have spoken out, Don DeBain, well, actually three other, Sharin Alumi, Alumi and Sochi Cadillon. So perhaps they all want to be the DA as well. But for some reason, I'm the only one that gets attacked with that statement. I think Don Dubain probably would like to be the DA, but he was not reelected when he was the DA in Solano County because of a cascading series of scandals and probably isn't electable in this city. As for some of the other DAs who have been the face of some of these advertisements, including one DA who claimed that she was run out of her job because she was not allowed to cooperate with the police and prosecute auto burglaries, that is factually false, which the Chronicle and the Examiner both called out. And in fact, recently, due to a DA initiative, Operation Autopilot, there was a major bust. They used bait cars to track stolen goods, and they were able to arrest someone far up the food chain who was fencing these parts locally, nationally, and internationally. I think that when you are inundated with this information and it is easy to get angry, it is easy to be convinced, because these stories sound so compelling. And then when you look behind them, you realize there's nothing there. Now might be a good time for some closing statements. What do you say? Uh, So each of our experts here is going to have two minutes to give a closing statement. And we are going to start with Ms. Brooke Jenkins, who's going to give her two-minute closing. Thank you. This is not about politics. This is not about ambition. 
This is about human life. And what I do know is that five lives have been lost in this city as the result uh, as a result of Chesa Boudin failing to either charge a repeat offender or failing to do what it took to hold one accountable in the right way and to promote rehabilitation in that person's life. And we cannot wait while five more lives are lost just to go through with an experiment. Reform can happen, but it has to be measured. It has to be instituted in a way that still promotes public safety, because at the end of the day, that will always be the primary function of the district attorney's office. These aren't fear-mongering stories. These are human lives. These are real people. And I have watched 54, well, 53, in addition to me, prosecutors walk out of the DA's office in the last two years, many of whom have made it clear that they don't feel that they were able to do their job effectively under Chesa Boudin. And these are people who worked tirelessly and dedic- in a dedicated fashion to George Gascon and to others who wanted to make a true difference in this system and to create reform. And so this isn't about being against Chesa because we want to do it the old way. This is not about the elementary argument of being tough on crime. This is about protecting true reform and, and maintaining that the DA's office has a primary function. And what has been lost is justice. Because we're not doing a justice to the offenders and we're surely not doing a justice to these victims or to the people every day who walk out being in fear of being the next victim. We have to protect people now. Nobody thinks Chase of Boudin being recalled will magically end crime in San Francisco. None of us are foolish enough to think that. But we, but we also know that the DA has the ability and has the obligation to try to curtail tr- crime. And that's what he's not doing. I want, before I get to my closing arguments, to briefly address the turnover issue, which has come up repeatedly. The San Francisco Standard, the same media outlet that just published this article about the 32s, dug into the data and said that there was no meaningful difference in turnover between this administration and the prior two. The turnover results were for a number of reasons, including firing some folks who needed to leave. Why? Well, one of them wrongfully convicted a man named Jamal Trulove. She did it using evidence that a unanimous court of appeals said was made out of whole cloth. Her case was essentially a fabrication. And when that conviction was reversed and Mr. Trulove, who is innocent, was potentially allowed to go free, what happened was that she was allowed to try him all over again. And she did. And because she wasn't allowed to commit misconduct the second time, he was acquitted. And as a result of all of the punishment and suffering that he underwent, he sued the city and county of San Francisco. And this prosecutor was deposed. And she kept insisting, in spite of all the evidence, that this man, Jamal Trulove, was actually guilty. And she said that the day that he was acquitted was a bad day for justice. This was a prosecutor who was not only allowed to remain in office, but actually promoted and continuing to try some of the heaviest cases that existed. And Jamal Trulove sued the city and county of San Francisco. He was found factually innocent and awarded $13 million. Why am I telling you this story? Because that is how things used to exist. If you care about victims, then maybe you should care about the victim of this murdered individual whose family for years was told a lie, which is that Jamal Trulove was a murderer and the real perpetrator was never caught. Or in Mr. Serious case, the man who gunned down Felix Bostarica, never caught, never held accountable. If we continue to do things in the way that we have been doing them before and make no mistake, because the recall doesn't actually have any solutions, they don't need to. They just need to tell you what a horrible person and how awful and reckless Chase Boudin is, but they don't actually have to come up with any real solutions. And until we commit and stick to progressive reform, we are not going to see real meaningful change. This idea that people are leaving in droves is simply false. That prosecutor who I just told you about, Chase Boudin, fired her. And he fired a couple of other people too. 
And some people, because they didn't like the new administration and the new policies, they left. And some people left to pursue other opportunities. As I'm sure everyone knows, the pandemic happened. And as a result of that, there was an enormous reshuffling. And in fact, now there are unprecedented opportunities for people to go and do other things. It caused many of us to rethink the things that we were going to do. In addition, it is the rare person who can stay in a job that difficult for an extensive period of time. The office actually at this point has no vacancies. In spite of all of this, people want to work there. Prosecutors who left under other administrations are coming back. They have vastly expanded victim services, including Chinese-speaking victims advocates, which were few to none previously, to try to reach more people. In spite of all of this, there are fair-minded, experienced prosecutors who do want to work for Chase Boudin. What we hear from the recall so often are these Willie Horton stories, which we've been hearing for decades in all different kinds of races. This recall has spent $5 million to attack this DA. $5 million. And yes, the vast majority of that money, it comes from wealthy billionaires who donate to Republicans. This is part of a larger playbook. It's not just about San Francisco. We're seeing it in cities all across the nation. It is a push to mislead voters into rejecting reforms that we know, we know are a better alternative to the failed policies of the past. There is a reason that every trusted organization, every single one that has weighed in on this recall has said no. The San Francisco Chronicle, The Examiner, the Bay Area Reporter, the San Francisco Standard, teachers, nurses, the Sierra Club, major organizations, and dozens and dozens of grassroots community groups. There is a reason why, and it was summed up, I thought, very well by the San Francisco Examiner. If the recall arguments against Chase Boudin are so strong, then why is it that they rely on so many falsehoods? We are better than this. We are better than this. Reject the recall. All right. Thank you so much to our audience here, to our audience virtually, to our experts who volunteered their time to come here and make the case. Election day is coming up. We hope we were able to <laughs> enlighten you guys and help you make your decision. <laughs> if you want to learn more about the Commonwealth Club's events and programs, just go to commonwealthclub.org backslash programs um, where you can see the programming coming up and you can also donate to your favorite most wonderfulest club. Thank you everyone for being here. Stay safe. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Voices of Children. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening.